Actually, though we covered this passage last week, we're going to start, for context purposes, we're going to start reading Mark 8, 34, and uh, we'll read through chapter 9, 13. This will just help give you context as to where we're going today. When Jesus had called the people to himself, with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. And that's what we covered last week. And you can tell as we're reading scripture how some, sometimes it's inconsistent in the way that the church teaches uh, that takes the focus off denying ourselves and taking up our cross. That was the whole message last week. But now Jesus goes on to say in chapter 9, verse 1, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And the cloud came and overshadowed them, and the voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. But suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one of the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept his word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Father, there is just a lot here. A lot, Father, that we see because your Spirit has given us eyes to see, ears to hear. And as we look to your word this morning, we consider, Lord, that only three of the disciples got to see this, behold this. What a special moment. And yet it's no less special that we're here today. Spirit inside of us, word in front of us, your people surrounding us. 
glimpses of glory, God. Thank you. Christ in. Amen. As a kid growing up, one of my favorite stories was that of Steve Austin. Not the wrestler. Not the wrestler. Steve Austin was a uh, NASA astronaut. Colonel Steve Austin, severely injured in a crash for an experimental aircraft. He's rebuilt in an operation that cost $6 million. Hence, he was called the $6 million man, or the bionic man. Um, the $6 million surgery, today it's estimated that that surgery to rebuild him would be about $34 million as of 2018. And I'm sure that it's only going up from there. But his right arm, both of his legs, his left eye are replaced with bionic implants that enhance his strength, speed, and vision far above human norms. If you remember the beginning of the show, it shows uh, an accident, this aircraft completely exploding that would have killed any normal human being. And then, you know, in the background it says, gentlemen, we have the technology to rebuild him, to make him better. Better, stronger, faster. Something seemingly destroyed made into something better than ever. That's a great story. Something that was seemingly uh, dead brought back to life in a way that was, wow, look at him in his new form. And we love stories like that, let's be very honest. We love stories where something that seems to be sort of worthless and useless and mundane is turned into something very useful, and um, and it's given new meaning and new purpose. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with the story of a farmer that turned into a Jedi, or a school nerd that turns into a web-spinning, wise-cracking, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, or a washed-up debt collector turned into a world championship boxer. We love these stories. They're stories where we take something old, worn, worthless, wrecked, damaged, destroyed, and it's made new. We love that. We even like these reality shows that we look at today, where they take a car that's been beaten to death, and they turn it into its former glory. It's now the muscle car that it was of old. Or these old houses, and they do an extreme makeover. We've actually had somebody in our room that was actually featured on one of these television shows for a glimpse uh, on one of these houses that was remade from the inside out. What about the shows like The Biggest Loser, where somebody that's struggling with their weight, they lose this much, they lose this much weight, and wow, what a great story. And we love these stories of transformation. They give us glimpses that something different is possible, that something better is possible. And that's what we have a book full of. We have a book full of changed lives. We have a room full of changed lives. And that's the essence of the story that we're uh, looking at when we look at the gospel, when we open up the Bible, we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we look at the rest of these stories, they're all about transformed lives. And we get a picture of that today. Three disciples have a unique experience 2,000 years ago that help us understand it. So we're going to start at chapter 9, verse 1. And it says here, And Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. They will not taste death. 
Now, I love that because the Bible tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And whenever the Bible uses the word taste, it kind of means like experience. You have to experience this. How many of you have ever been at a restaurant and you said, oh, this is good. You've got to taste this. You've got to try this. This is really good. All right? Death is not one of those things that we say, oh, you've got to try this. You've got to try this. Anybody that has experienced the death of a loved one or come close to dying themselves, that's not something we look at and you say, oh, you've got to try it. It's amazing. It's fantastic. No. All right? It's something that, for the most part, it's one of those life experiences that if we had the opportunity, we would like to bypass, quite honestly. But if Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, some of you will not taste death. Not until they see the kingdom of God present with power. What we're going to see in today's passage is that some are going to get a glimpse of the power of God. Some are going to get a glimpse of the glory of God through the transfiguration. But also in the book of Acts, it's chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus tells the disciples, listen, go into Jerusalem and wait for the gift I'm going to give you because that's going to be your power to bring forth the word to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so they're going to see the power of God come on this planet. But these guys are going to get a glimpse of something today in our passage. And again, the glimpses that we get are often signs of hope. So now... It says here, verse 2, After six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, which has, which has no longer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now stop right there for a second. Jesus takes three disciples. Why these three? Why Peter, James, and John? Was it because they were so much faithful than the rest? Was it because they loved him more than the rest? Or was it God's grace? People have battled with that. But in the end, the thing that's really important is that he invited these three for his honor, for his glory, and yes, also for their blessing. That's why these three were invited and the others kind of left behind. They were going to experience things. Now, there are three experiences that these disciples have that none of the other disciples have. The first is found in Luke 8. And in Luke 8, Peter, James, and John are invited into a room to see Jesus resurrect a young girl. And then we see the second instance right here where the three are invited to this mountain to see this event called the Transfiguration. And then there's another event coming shortly after this where the three are invited to Gethsemane while Jesus goes and prays. Do you remember? It's Peter, James, and John. So these are the three. And so what is the significance of these three events and these three disciples? What do they get to experience that the others don't? Well, if you take a look, each situation that they're invited into involves death. Each situation somehow involves death. So the first situation where they're invited in to see the young girl resurrected, in that situation, you see victory over death. And in the second situation, what you see is that Jesus is going to be glorified in his death. And that's what we're going to see today in the transfiguration. But in the third instance, at the top of Gethsemane, when the disciples are with him, what you see is Jesus surrender to death. Each of these situations are highly significant. Now, 
Three here are going to experience things that the others would not experience because they're walking with Jesus. And there's an application for us. When you're intentional about your walk with Jesus Christ, you're going to have more experiences with him, perhaps, than somebody else that is just kind of blowing it off or doing the church thing or, or just kind of walking through and phoning it in. If you're honestly seeking him, if you're walking with him, it doesn't mean you're loved any more or any less than anyone else. It just means you're going to experience that love to a different extent because you've been intentional and said, listen, I am following Jesus. I want to walk with him. I want to go where he goes. I want to see what he's going to show me. I don't want to miss anything. And so we have Peter, James, and John, and they're being very intentional. Listen, this just makes sense to us. If you want to grow in any relationship, if you want to experience the benefits of that relationship, you have to be paying attention to that relationship, yes? There are times at the dinner table, or times on a date with my wife better, where I've got the cell phone. And the cell phone is on the table. And sometimes it rings on my date with my wife. I have a choice to make. Am I going to pick it up? And am I going to be distracted from the experience that I'm having with my wife right now? Or am I going to just shut it off, put it in my pocket, leave it in the car? The reason I say this is because your time with God, how many of you have scheduled, uninterrupted, this is me and God time? I'm shutting everybody else out. This is me and God time, and I want to experience him to the fullest. I want to hear from him. I want to see him. See, these disciples have dropped everything. Make no mistake, they dropped everything. Last week, you remember what happened when Jesus was talking to the crowd? Listen, if somebody wants to follow me, they have to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Do you remember the two groups of people he was talking to? He was talking to the disciples, yes, but he was also talking to the crowd. Now, the disciples had left everything to follow Jesus. And he was making a statement to the crowd. He was making a statement to the disciples. But now he's got the three disciples. So last week it was the crowd and the disciples. Now it's these three disciples. They're going to have an experience that no one else is going to have. Listen, you will have great conversations when you decide to make him the, the total focus of that conversation. Those moments where you shut the ringer off, you go to that place, uh, you probably are going to have to go outside because if your house is anything like my house, the only time we can find peace is the bathroom sometimes. That's the most peaceful place in the house. Even my, even my, even my eight-year-old knows it. John, why are we in the bathroom for 40 minutes? It's the most peaceful place in the house, Dad. Okay, That makes sense. I can't say you're wrong. No, because you're actually very right. Listen, for us, what is that time and what does that place look like for you? Because some of you are sitting here right now saying, I don't feel like I'm experiencing God, I can't feel God. And my question for you is this, is that are you being intentional about your time with Him? Because He wants that time with you. So He takes the three up there, and they witnessed this thing called the transfiguration. It says he was transfigured before them. And transfigured comes from that word that we understand as being a metamorphosis. It's a change in form. 
and it's only used this particular word three times in Scripture. One is right here in Matthew 17. The other is Romans 12, which we're going to take a look at a little bit later, and 2 Corinthians 3.18. But this is only used three times in Scripture, and that's very significant. It kind of gives you the picture of what we see when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. It's a metamorphosis. It's a change in form. And in this case, it's something that is that is of human form being changed into heavenly form. Metamorphosis for me was made very real in the 1970s. My first experience was with metamorphosis was called the Wonder Twins. Is anybody here, is anybody even somewhat familiar with that? No. Okay. Huh? Okay. Yeah, Wonder Twin Power is activated. Okay, so you, during this old television series that I was captivated by, the Super Friends, it's a DC thing. I know most of us have shifted Marvel, but this was a DC thing. And so you had Zan and Jane, and these were the Wonder Twins, and it was the sister and the brother. And do you remember when they would get together in a troublesome situation? What they would do is Wonder Twin Powers activate. They had to touch hands in order for the activation to happen. And she would turn into some kind of an animal. Um, either a mythical creature or a regular animal, and her brother would turn into some sort of a form of water, ice, or, or liquid, or something like that. And there would be this transformation. I'm like, wow, they changed forms. And if we can understand that, the changing of forms, well, here we have something that is, that again, they're seeing the Son of Man fully glorified as the Son of God, and he's sitting there having a discussion with Elijah and Moses. That's pretty cool, right? Wouldn't it be neat to just see, okay, Jesus, Elijah, Moses, this is a pretty phenomenal um, occurrence here. Now take a look at what happens. It says here, again, he took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain, verse 2, apart by themselves. He was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white, like snow, such as no longer on earth can whiten them. So they see Jesus in his glory, and Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. Stop right there for a second. You see, the significance of this is that you have Elijah and Moses. Now, it's not told that Elijah and Moses had identified themselves Peter just recognized them. He just recognized them. And why this moment is important is because Elijah and Moses, they are great figures in the Old Testament. Elijah was considered to be a representative of the prophets. Moses was considered to be a representative of the law. And if you remember right, Moses died a physical death without getting to go to the promised land. You remember that story in scripture? For a moment, Moses, he upsets God, and because he upsets God, and because he reacts a certain way, God says, listen, Moses, you're not going to get to go to the promised land. Now, Moses is a type of the law. Why isn't Moses allowed to go to the promised land? Yes, because of his reaction, but also to show us and give us a picture of something, that the law will never bring you to the promised land. So you've got Moses, 
And now you've also got Elijah. Now Elijah's someone completely different because Elijah's a prophet. And Elijah has a unique experience. Do you remember how we said it would be so nice sometimes for us to be able to bypass death to go where we're going? Elijah did. Elijah didn't suffer physical death. He was called to heaven. God brought him home without him having to suffer death. And so here you have the bringing together of the Old Testament, the law, and the Old Testament prophets together with Jesus. And Jesus said this. He said that he was the fulfillment in Matthew 5, 17. He said, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. I came to fulfill the law of the prophets. The first thing that we want to say today, the first of five quick points that we want to make about this passage, when it comes to glimpses of glory, because glimpses of glory, there are these things that give us confidence, they give us hope in what we believe during times of struggle especially. One, we're going to get a glimpse of glory here when we see how the story comes together. Here you see the story come together. You've got the law, you've got the prophets. Oh, this is how it comes together. Jesus says that he was the fulfillment of these things. So how did the Old Testament laws and the prophecies that were made, how does Jesus play into that? You're about to see the whole thing come together. And listen, when we see that, that's a glimpse of glory. When you see a great story come together, last week, our culture spent $1 billion to see the culmination of 20 movies put out by Marvel rolled into one ending. There was a lady that actually made a conscious decision to go into the movie theater that had the measles. I'm going to go see this movie. I don't care. I've got the measles. She's going into the theater. That's how much she wanted to see the movie. Now, here's the thing. With the way that our culture is, you know this as well as I do. A lot of the people in the theater... If they would have known somebody with, with measles was there, they still would have went. They wanted to see this movie that bad. A billion dollars this made. Because it rolls all the stories into one and you can see how everything comes together. And you're like, wow. Now listen. In front of you, you have the word of God. It brings the entire story together of creation, of redemption, of longing in the human heart. It ties things together in a way that no other author on this planet can. Listen, you remember Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? When you read John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you think that there's any mistake in the author writing Genesis, when, when he's writing John, to bring it all together? When you read the Gospels, do you sometimes see the Gospel writers saying, and it was fulfilled according to Scripture, like this? Why? Because it's bringing the story together. And when the story is brought together, God is glorified. When you see how the whole thing plays out. Now, when you begin to understand how this plays out, you begin to understand what's happening in the world, and then you begin to understand your role in it. Listen, there's nothing that glorifies God more than a man or a woman that begins to understand the reason that they were placed on this planet to fulfill his calling for their life. And so it's a glimpse of glory when we see how the story comes together. All the prophecies, how the law created a longing in our heart 
to be made right with God that is fulfilled only in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read from Luke 24. Because it was after Jesus' crucifixion that now he's walking on the road to Emmaus. And he's walking with two of his followers that don't recognize him. They, they're prevented from recognizing him. And this is on the third day, and it says, Now behold, two of them were traveling, this is chapter 24 of Luke, verse 13, that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have had with one another, and how you walk and are so sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there these days? He said, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God and the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified. But we were kind of hoping it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certainly the woman of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then Jesus said to them, and again, they don't recognize that it's him, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Verse 27 is key. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And that's the point. He took the law, he took the prophets, and he rolled it all into one so that they could understand that the whole story was about him in the first place. How the whole thing comes together. You see, we're going to get glimpses of glory when we see how God is orchestrating this whole story. There are parts of your life that you say, well, this got past God, and, and, and you know, maybe I'm not worthy of God. Listen, if you're within hearing distance, he's got a plan for you. What is your responsibility in that plan? To drop everything and say, okay, Lord, let me stop writing my story, and let me start learning about your story so I can understand how I fit into this. Listen, so many people are walking around this life not knowing how they fit into the story that was written from before time. And they spend a lot of time complaining to the author without ever speaking to the author. And so the first thing is that we're going to get glimpses of glory when we see how the story is brought together. The law and the prophets converge on this mountain to have the powwow of powwows with Jesus Christ. But the second point is this, glimpses of glory can give us encouragement during the challenging parts of our story. Have you ever had that happen? Where as you were going through it, a text came in from a friend, a song came on the radio. For us a couple of weeks ago, 
on a Friday night at Mops Memorial Service. I didn't expect these guys to walk in, but they did. Our youth group came. They found their own way there. And that was something to me. I looked at it, I was like, wow, what an encouragement that was to my sad heart for the thing that we were going through at the time. Because God gives glimpses of glory during the times that you're just kind of going through it. So how does he do that? He uses you all to do that. This morning, did you set out to say, listen, I want to, I want to be intentional about encouraging somebody for Jesus Christ today. Did anybody say that this morning? I hope you did. I want to make sure that my life is an encouragement by my words, by my actions, that I'm doing something because somebody in this congregation might have walked in to hear, they might have walked in here hurting today. So what does God do? Sometimes he gives us a verse. Maybe you've had this happen before where you're going through this particular struggle and you go on to you version and you see the verse of the day. Now listen, that verse of the day that you find on you version, millions of other people got that same verse. But you said, that's talking to me. That's talking to me. Do that. You looked at that and you said, wow, this is for me. How do we do that? How does God do that? How does he know which devotional you're going to pick up on that day? And you just read that devotional and you're like, this is speaking to me. It's meeting me right where I'm at. When thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of other people are reading that same devotional. For some, they're saying, oh, this was written directly for me. For some of you, are saying, well, I didn't get a whole lot out of it today. But God has found ways of speaking to us and giving us glimpses of glory through our times of struggle. Listen, the disciples were told in Mark 8.31 that he was going to go to the cross. In, chapter, in verse 36, they were told to deny themselves, take up their cross. Maybe some of them might have been discouraged at that moment. They were not receiving the best of news. You know, Jesus, this is kind of negative, and I don't think that I really want to deal with the negative today. And so what does he do? He takes three of them, takes them up to the top of the mountain, and they get to see uh, Moses and Elijah. I don't know about you, but if I was going through a struggle and Jesus said, Jesus revealed Moses and Elijah and himself, I'd be sitting there like, okay, I'm set for a while. You? You say, okay, I'm set for a while. Listen, he does that today when we open this book up. There's a special way that God works and speaks to us today when we are determined to say, listen, you know what, I'm not going to wait for the crisis to come. I'm going to stay in the Word so I can handle the crisis when it gets here. There's a difference between just waiting and then trying to and then trying to say, okay, well, I need a scripture now because I'm in a crisis. I need a scripture. Where is it? Maybe if I just close my eyes and open up the book, it'll magically go to the right place. Has God ever done that? Yeah, I think he has. But wouldn't you rather be prepared for what's coming? See, these glimpses of glory sometimes we get during a time of struggle. Listen, one of the best examples of this ever is the book of Acts. If you want to turn there for a second, it's Acts 7. And it's the story of Stephen, considered to be the first martyr in the church. And Stephen, what he's doing is he's pretty much recounted the whole story, and this is again how it fits into to our story. He's talking to the religious leader, Stephen. He's telling them, he's recounting their whole history, how it ties into Jesus, and the religious leaders are happy or not happy. They are not happy to the point where they want to kill him. They want to see him dead. 
So Stephen says in verse 51 of Acts 7, he says, You stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. It's endearing to the people. You know, he's really trying to tickle their ears, right? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Here's how you can have your best life now. No, he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? He says, how did you not mess this up? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. All right, don't hold back, Stephen. Tell us how you really feel. Listen to verse 54. It says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. How many of you in this room can get someone angry? Anybody? Besides the pastor. I'm really, really good at it. Okay? But if there's anybody in this room that can get someone But how many of you have gotten someone so nasty to the point where they're actually gnashing their teeth at you? That's a gift. Okay? So Stephen says they're gnashing his teeth, but he being full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven, and this is the point, don't miss it, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with loud voice, stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stop right there for a second. Is he given a glimpse of glory for the situation that he's in? Yes. What is it? He looks up and he's given a vision of heaven in which he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, what does that do? What does he say? Does it affect his verbiage? Yes. Because what he says sounds very similar to the things that Jesus said when he was hanging on the cross. Receive my spirit. Did Jesus say that? Did Jesus say, Lord, do not charge them with the sin? Do you remember him saying, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do? See, he's given a glimpse of that. And being given a glimpse of that, that gets him through the situation. Listen. We have to make ourselves available. It's the things we listen to, it's the people we're speaking to, it's the scripture we're reading, it's the way we're spending our time. Because what's going to happen is this, is that you'll find if you're during some of the toughest times in your life as you're going through it, that God is giving you a scripture, he'll remind you of a scripture, you'll get a phone call from a friend. And he gives us these things that we need to get through the difficult situations. So it gives us glimpses of glory that can give us encouragement during challenging parts of the story. It also, the third point is this, is that glimpses of glory get us ready for the next chapter of the story. Have you had this happen in your life where, you know, in hindsight now, you can look back and say, wow, God was preparing me for this moment. Anybody had that happen where you're like, all right, you know what? I went through the, you know, you went through the fire, and you can say, you know, God was preparing me for that by doing this, this, and this. Usually you only see this after you've gone through it. 
And you're like, oh wow, God was kind of preparing me for that the whole time. Here you have the disciples, they're about to go into the roughest moment of their life. The toughest time of their life this far is that they're going to a moment now, they've been told that Jesus was going to die on the cross, he's told them that, but in just a few short chapters, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be abandoned, he's going to be denied, he's going to be crucified, they're going to watch him take his last breath. And do you remember Jesus told them, listen, when they strike down the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. That includes you guys. Peter says, not me. Jesus says, yes, you. Peter says, not me. Jesus says, yeah, you. That's the truth, man. But even these things, even Peter and John and James are given a glimpse of something. They're given a glimpse of glory. I wonder for Abraham, as he's walking his son for three days to the place where he's going to have to sacrifice him, I wonder what's kind of going through his mind. The book of Hebrews assures us that he, he goes believing God and his promises. You've got to wonder if there are moments of doubt, though, if there were, they're not recorded in Scripture. But don't you think that as a dad that he kind of wished... Hey, listen, I wish I had ten verses ahead to see where this whole thing was going with God asking me to sacrifice my son. How many of you wish you could have two chapters ahead in your life right now? Just be able to get a little bit of a glimpse that you could just say, if this was the book on your life, and you could just say, listen, I just kind of want to know if it turns out okay. Is this going to be the relationship I'm in? Huh? Huh. Is this going to be the job? Is this going to be where I end up career-wise? Don't you wish that you could look ahead in the book and get that little glimpse of something? Because if you had that glimpse, it would at least give you confidence for the moment. Well, God gives us the overall glimpse. He shows us this, is that, that the, all the things work together for good to those who love God. We can peek ahead anytime we want in the story. We can go to Revelation. We can see that he wins and that everyone that with, that's with him wins. And if you're with him, you win. We can live in that confidence. So often, we're so wrapped up in the circumstances, we're so wrapped up in the situation that we don't look to his promises, we don't remember who wins the end of the story. We forget, we take God out of perspective, and because we take him out of perspective and we forget his promises, we're going strictly fueled by emotions and situations and crisis, and we're led by these things. And that controls our decision making. You have a glimpse of glory into the future, and you're included in a glorious ending. You're included in it. I want to focus on verse 5 and read down a little bit of chapter 9. It says, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, We have to cover this. He says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. So Peter spoke out of fear and out of not knowing what to do, and he proves the adage that I'm sure that you've all heard, 
It's better to keep your mouth shut and let people think that you're foolish than open it up and remove all doubt. And that's Peter. And you have to just imagine that the other disciples are sitting there with him saying, what did he say? Did he just say what I think he said? Did he just offer to build these guys, all three of them, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah at 10? And so James and Peter have to be looking at him like this, and Elijah and Moses are maybe looking at Jesus like, who is this guy? Who is this dude? He's offering to build us a place? Hasn't he read the rest of the history and how that kind of doesn't work? And it's never... But Peter doesn't know what to say. And so he opens up his mouth and he says something foolish. And it kind of gives us a little bit of an insight as to what we should do. What do you do when you get the glimpse of glory? Listen, here's, what, here's something you can do and you will never go wrong. If you get a glimpse of God's glory and if he speaks to you and he shows something to you, stay in awe. And if you need to, keep your mouth shut. And if you want to sing praises, sing praises. And if you want to tell, if, if God's put it on your heart to tell someone about what he's shown you, then, then, then do that. But better to keep your mouth closed. And that's what we see with Peter. And after he does that, it says, A cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. And again, significance. The law and the prophets disappeared. You have Moses and Elijah, they were gone, and all that's left was Jesus. So let's just disregard the rest of this book. No! Popular pastors are out there today saying, well, you don't have to read the Old Testament. Discount the Old Testament. Just look at the New Testament. No! We're told to teach the whole counsel of God because you can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. And you definitely can't understand the Old Testament without understanding the New Testament. We teach the full counsel of God because we teach a whole God. We teach a whole God. And it's imperative that we have this understanding. And here... The, void, the cloud that comes, you wouldn't understand this cloud unless you understood the Old Testament. It's the Shekinah glory cloud that we see. And we see that used in the Old Testament in several times, especially in the story of Moses, in the story of Elijah. And now God speaks out of the cloud. And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Oh, he says, this is my beloved son, hear him. Hear him. There's a simple word in that for all of us. If everything else gets washed out, hear him. Spend time with him. Know him. When you do that, you're going to understand how the rest of the story plays into this. Now they came down from the mountain, and he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen, till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves questioning what rising from the dead meant. And we want to make a fourth point about these glimpses of glory. And the fourth point is a very simple one. Glimpses of glory help us understand the essence of the story. The essence of the story is transformation. You see a transfiguration. You see the glory of God. You see a change. All right? You see a transformed Jesus. He's appearing in white. And if we're paying attention, again, that word for transfiguration, it's the, same, it's the same term that we see in Romans 
And I just want to read this to you. For time's sake, I'm not going to ask you to turn there. But it's Romans 12, which tells us this. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your whole self as a living sacrifice, because God is transforming you from the inside out. It might not be so readily uh, discernible in the clothing that you wear. It might not be clothing that is white as snow, whiter than any launderer on earth could make it, but it's a change in you, a very distinct change. When you draw close to God through his word, because he's revealing who he is, he's revealing what he wants you to do. And as you're looking at it, hopefully what's happening is this. You're never just reading it just for information, because it's all about transformation. If you're only reading this book for information, you're going to miss it. Because what God is doing, he's revealing something about himself. He's showing you a good example of, of Joseph. He's showing you a bad example of Ahab. He's showing you an ugly example of Goliath or whatever. He's showing you these things, and you're looking at them saying, Okay, God, what do you want me to take from this today? And what God is doing the whole time is he's transforming you from the inside out. And there's a transformation, a type of transfiguration taking place, a metamorphosis, if you will. The problem is, is that so many in the church today, they want to leave feeling better, but they don't want to leave changed. One pastor gives a great example of the butterfly plant prances from flower to flower, pausing and moving like believers who go from service to service. They don't really do anything. They just flitter. They are really good at looking pretty dressed and colorful on any given Sunday. These people go from church to church and conference to conference fluttering. Some Christians are like the botanist not the butterfly, another like the botanist, who intently studies the flower, taking copious notes, writing everything down, and observing all of the idiosyncratic details of every kind of flower there is. Although this botanist may be an academic genius, he is totally unaffected by his notes. This person is like the Bible college student or the seminarian who can quote Greek, Hebrew, and Edgar. He can break down the syntax of a sentence and go into the grammatical construct of a verse, diagramming all the elements of the passage, but who walks away untransformed with all of the knowledge. But then there's the bee. The bee is a little different. It goes into the flower, takes out the nectar. The bee does more than the butterfly, which just wants to flutter from place to place. It does more than the botanist, who just wants a good grade. The bee wants to partake of the nectar of the flower. It comes in empty, but it leaves full, and on its way out it deposits something somewhere so that the pollination occurs and life keeps on going. The question is posed, are you the butterfly Christian? Are you a botanist Christian, or are you a bee? Are you merely fluttering from service to service to feel good about having gone to church? Are you one who writes down everything but are untransformed, or are you the one who will receive the full truth from the word of God. Which Christian are you? Because the essence of this story is about transformation. That's what the disciples are able to see during the transfiguration. That it's a, 
truly a story about transformation. So the glimpse of glory helps us understand the essence of the whole story. The essence is transformation. It's not a get-out-of-hell-free card, as we've said before. It's an invitation to life transformation. It's not about a destination so much as it is about a relationship. The essence of the story is taking that which is contaminated and corrupted and making it purified and perfected. And that's the essence of the gospel. It's about life change. See, because if you're sitting in the congregation and there's no desire to be more like Christ, then you probably don't understand the message. Because that's what the gospel is. It's about waking up and saying, wow, you did this for me. You gave everything for me. Not for the money that I have, not for the talents that I have, not for anything that I have to offer. You made everything out of nothing. It's a transformation that takes place here because you say, listen, he did that for me. I want to live for him, whatever that means. Telling someone about Jesus, teaching someone about Jesus, telling anyone, telling everyone about Jesus, not wanting to miss anything that he has because you know, you know that you're a changed life and that your changed life is only made possible because of and by his grace. And the fifth point, we are coming to a close, and when I say that today, I actually mean it. <laughs> the disciples seem to have a question for Jesus, and it's a question that so many people have. What about Elijah? See, there's a prophecy that Elijah was going to have to be the forerunner to the Messiah. You can find it in Malachi 4. Verses 5 and 6. We're not going to go there now. But it says here that the disciples had some questions, starting at verse 9, reading through the end of the passage. It says, Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one of the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning that the, what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Stop right there, because the question arises, well, wasn't Elijah supposed to come before the Messiah, but you're telling us that the Messiah is here and that the Messiah is you, so how do we understand this? Well, later in other parts of Scripture, Jesus says that John the Baptist, in essence, came in the Spirit. He was dressed like Elijah, he preached like Elijah, he was reminiscent of Elijah, but Jesus, in essence, is talking about the second coming. And that's seen in Revelation 11, 12, where you're going to see the two prophets. One of them is believed to be Elijah, that's going to be the forerunning to the second coming of the Christ. And it brings us to the last point of the story. The only way you're ever going to understand this story, or any other story, is by understanding it's his story. It's his to explain. If I don't understand it, I have to go to him first. For some of you in this room right now, there are aspects of your story that you don't understand, and you won't. There are things that you're trying to figure out about your relationships, about your job, about your future. You're not going to figure them out. 
if you just look out there and try to figure out how the different pieces of the puzzle that is called your life are being put together. But when you start in here and you draw close to the relationship with the author of life, then what happens is you understand that all of history is his story. And when you acknowledge that, do you understand this is all his story? Then you start asking yourself, well, what's important to him? And you stop making it about you. And when we start making it about him, well, what happens is this, that we have his wind in ourselves. Listen, there are people on this planet that have accomplished great things. Masterminds of technology. Musical geniuses. Peacemakers, such as Gandhi. Giants, such as Steve Jobs. But at the end of their life, if they didn't make peace with him, if theirs wasn't a transformed life, a changed life, then the best of what they offer to this planet will burn. It's done. You were created for a purpose. God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that you may walk in them. And you are a beautiful creation of God. I want to close you with this poem written by a brother. It says, Lord, paint a picture. Lord, paint a picture in my heart with the colors you impart. Shades of love and royal red in the precious blood you shed. Decorate within my mind every canvas that you find with a vivid shade and hue, all the colors that are you. Create in me a vibrant man, fashioned by your loving hand into a portrait of your peace as my will I now release for the priceless life you gave, painted in your blood to save all forgotten works of art, now a gallery in your heart. To display your love and grace, every color you embrace, on the canvas of the cross, all you painted paid the cost. For your work of art in me, that you signed for all to see, has become the grand design that you painted in my mind. Let's pray.